Hello, and welcome back to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. And in this episode, I'll look at the second half of Rocket Ship Galileo, originally published in 1947, uh, the first of Heinlein's post-war uh, books for younger readers, uh, the so-called juveniles. Um, and we'll be spending a lot of time on that in the upcoming weeks, well into uh, well into the autumn and, and, and even the winter, I think, before we get through all these and get into the middle Heinlein works. Um, so as I kind of complained about last time, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the first half of this book. I think the second half does give us a little bit more to talk about and think about. I, I, overall, I still think this is not the greatest of, of Heinlein's books. I think he was still trying to find his bearing as a, as a juvenile writer and, and trying to mix the, the plotting with a kind of an overly didactic message here. I think the, the lessons he's trying to teach young readers are more well integrated than some of the other juveniles I've, I've read. Um, but, you know, it takes us another, I mean, I think that's part of the problem here is it takes us half the book to get into space, right? So a lot of the first half is is about this uh, rocket club and how they 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 get recruited by this guy, the scientist Car Dr. Cargraves to go on this lunar mission and then the experiments and the little bit on media and stuff, but it, it's basically getting ready for the, the, the takeoff. Um, so if we pick up like with chapter 10, I think that's a fine place to pick. We're already in space. We have just successfully uh, witnessed the departure from Earth, and we get a chapter called The Method of Science. And here's uh, something I joked about in the last episode a little bit is how they're gone for 11 days. Um, I think the whole time and space takes place over 11 days. Uh, the trip to the moon and back and all their adventures with the Nazis in space, it takes 11 days. But he has to promise, Hard Cargraves, I mean, has to promise to their parents, these boys' parents, that he will continue their education while they're doing that, despite the fact that they're going to the moon. Um, and so they actually bring textbooks along. And and I don't know why you would need textbooks, like algebra textbooks. I don't know if maybe technical manuals and things, but they actually bring their textbooks on the spaceship. And they're packed away, so they can't like open them up while they're on the this rocket. But the plan is once they get on the moon, I guess they're going to be continuing with their studies. Um, but we get one of these lessons. It's not based on a textbook. It's Cargrave giving them a scientific thought experiment, teaching them about the scientific method and scientific inquiry and how science, basically the, like the Bacon's laws of the idols, how you have to break down all the idols, all your preconceptions to really interpret the evidence as it is. So the thought experiment he gives them is, does the moon have a, a, a backside? Does the moon have a backside? And of course, if it's a physical thing, you would, you know, and you, you the Earth is your model. What you've seen on Earth is your model. You would expect, yeah, there'd be a back. Anything physical is three-dimensional and therefore would have a back, right? Um, and Cargraves kind of breaks this down saying, well, you don't know that. I may think that and you may think that, but you don't know it. You can't say it for sure. You have no evidence to prove it. And they talk about different experiments that are done like bouncing 
light off of the moon. And they said, Cargrave says, well, that's just light. Ultimately, it doesn't prove it's a physical object with a back. Um, he even gives an example of something without a back, which is a rainbow, but rainbow, right? Where you only see a rainbow from one side, the side with the sun. If you go to the other side of the of the rainbow, if you get around it, and look to either side, you won't see it because the sun's on the other side of you. Um, and it won't be reflecting off the water. Um, he even offers up an experiment where they could try this in their own um, backyard. Um, so he says there are things that appear physical and appear to be there but don't have a back. Um, and the only way to know for sure is to go and see it yourselves and, and feel it and touch it. Which is, I think, a pretty good introduction to the scientific method it's a bit of a preposterous example because um, he even says like there's no proof that our physical laws work on other planets right of course the scientific revolution universalized that newton's law of universal gravi gravitation was the idea that you could apply gravitation to the earth the same forces that the apple falls to the ground is what keeps the planets moving it's it's a universal thing that exists across the whole universe but Cargrave says, it's not really proven. We can observe it. It seems to be true from observations, but it's not proven until we actually get to the moon and drop something and, and test the law of universal gravitation. I'm sure that's been done. But did the Apollo missions take the time to do this? Hopefully they did. Then they can debunk Cargrave's uh, skepticism here. Um, this is a good scientific skepticism. It's not pure skepticism. It's not saying there's no truth. It's just saying truth has to be proven. So that's... Um, that's good. Um, I think it's a fun little aside. And he also has like lessons here on, you know, other kinds of technical lessons he gives them. But the heart of this chapter is this, this scientific uh, lesson. Does the moon have a back? Um, so I think that's an example of uh, that's, that's like the first time in the book where I really kind of maybe got a little bit interested in, in a philosophical level of what they're saying. Even though it strikes us as rather silly, it's, um, it's a well taken point, I think. Um, that we need, you know, science requires concrete evidence of things. You can't just extrapolate one thing for and universalize it without good reasons too. And until we get off the earth, we really can't um, do this very well. To some degree, right? There's some things we can study, right? He even gives the example of the green cheese thing. They, they, they measured a spectrometer of result of green cheese versus the moon, found they're not the same, proving the moon's not made of green trees, but if you take Cargrave's skepticism until you get to the moon and get a spoon out and take a spoonful of, of, of moon and eat it, you can't really know. And even then, how do you know? It's not just green cheese that tastes a little bit different, dusty or sandy or whatever. I don't know, maybe. Anyways, there it is. I think that's a fair representation of Heinlein's views on science, I suppose, or at least what view of science that he thinks young people should be introduced to. Um, so that's fine, even though it's, again, it's still very didactic. It's still very Cargrave's giving a lesson to the boys. Um, the next chapter, chapter 11, uh, becomes a little bit uh, even more interesting when they finally land on the moon. But before they land, they see the, the craters. And one of the boys, I can never keep these boys uh, straight. One's like a, one's a radio expert. One's the, the pilot, you know, whatever. But... The idea here is the distribution of the craters on the moon, where there's not as many craters in the seas, 
implies there maybe really was water there at one point and that this wasn't just a uh, random uh, meteors hitting the moon in fact it was the result of the war so in fact we, we get concrete proof in this book at least that you know our characters find actual direct evidence of moon men in the forms of their architecture but the first evidence of it is the distribution of the craters and uh, the conclusion they come to and cargraves says that's a pretty good theory it seems to hold up at least at first um first glance is that um the civilization of moon men sometime in the past was destroyed by an atomic war they had one atomic war too many we're told um which you know they this is not a in fact, this this is an idea that I think comes across in a Philip Dick story where they're on the moon and they see evidence of an old destroyed civilization that then retreated to Earth. And so we are the moon men. Or maybe it's Mars. It might have been Mars. But it's, it's the same basic concept as that. We've already destroyed one planet. We've come to another one. In this case, it seems the moon men are just driven to extinction um, and destroying the atmosphere, destroying the oceans, through this atomic war. So this is a good uh, warning in the atomic age. Um, of course, our whole plot here revolves around atomic technology. So Heinlein feels it's important to put the warning in there that yeah, maybe atomic power can be used for propulsion. Maybe we can use it to do great things, but it also can be used for for destruction. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that, that this is a, that it's something we should warn ourselves about. Um, so, and then eventually, after this discussion about the atomic war, they land on the moon, and they, they get there, the Galileo lands. So, they achieve their goal of getting to the moon, and we're at page, on my version, 139 out of 210 pages. So, it takes us a big chunk of the, of the novel to get to this point, but from this point on, the story really picks up and becomes a bit of a little action story, and I think it's, uh, it's rather nicely done here. I think Kindline took what could have been a very, very boring, ultimately a very boring story. Because where, where, what can you do if there's not Nazis on the moon? Um, the moon men are gone. There's no indigenous people. So maybe some crisis, right? Like an Apollo 13 kind of thing. That's the only other way to go. Heinlein said, no, we're going to put people on the moon. We're going to put Nazis on the moon. And we're going to have a little conflict over that. And we're going to make getting back like a challenge and I, I think bravo that's that saves this novel it, it saves it from what it could have been which would have been a very very dull tale i think now before we get to the nazis we actually have two more chapters so it's not to the last 50 pages that we even get to the the nazi subplot which um i don't know if it was always set up for i, I have to say this this is poss possibly something he added later on in the novel because he, it's not until they show up that it seems at all set up. There was no like foreshadowing of, of these people being on the moon. But we got an interesting chapter here, chapter 12, called The Bare Bones, where we actually, uh, I think we get some evidence here of, of some metalwork that suggests the, the previous existence of moon men, but this also could be, this may be some bit of foreshadowing for the Nazis, I suppose. But the main thing that happens here is we, we see one of our boys is almost killed by a by a like an oxygen tank thing where there's too much oxygen being thrown into their body and he kind of gets some uh, starts hallucinating things based on that um, but he's ultimately saved at the end so um, there is some dangers here that aren't 
um, directly related to the, the the foreign force on on the moon. They're both foreigners, but the the, the antagonistic force that's settled on the moon. Um, so we got that. Then they start to build uh, their home, essentially their fort on the moon. They're kids, right? They're, 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 I guess they're close to adulthood, but they're, they're still kids enough that they're going to enjoy building a, a little fort on the moon, um, which is going to be their base of operations, and they set it up for receiving messages. This is an important plot point later on, is where it's difficult for them to send message, but not necessarily, uh, like, receiving messages is a little bit easier. So they're set up for that, but it's not going to be an easy solution to the Nazi problem if they could easily send messages. So it's at this point in the story that uh, Cargraves declares the moon for the United Nations. So this uh, actually becomes kind of an important like legal point later on where he claims it for the United Nations. Uh, he puts up a UN and a US flag, but the claiming of the moon is on behalf of the, of the UN. Let me find the exact quote here. Here's what Cargrave says. As commander of this expedition, duly authorized by a commission of the United Nations in proceeding in a vessel of United States registry, I take possession of this planet as a colony on behalf of the United Nations of Earth in accordance with the laws thereof and the laws of the United States. End quote. So it's, it's like a U.S. operation, but the claim, the colony, is that of the U.N. So that's... Uh, um, also, like the same way this novel expresses some optimism about uh, the potential of, of, of atomic energy for propulsion. It has some optimism about the UN. And I, and I think although Heinlein is very American, I think he does, uh, at this time, he's a little uh, bullish on, on the United Nations potential, as many people were, right? This is the age where they're working on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, you have the Nuremberg trials. You have a moment in which a more established international system could have been established. Right. Uh, notice the Soviet Union is not a threat here. This is before the Cold War really breaks out. Right. Bef maybe the Korean War breaks out in 40. Um, no, it's a little later. It's like 1949. Right. That the, that the Korean War breaks out. There is the beginning of Cold War tensions. But, you know, the, the post-war alliance is still more or less intact at this, this point, even though the fractures are beginning to show. And the U.N. is showing the potential of maybe an indifferent world system establishing and the nazis that we meet on the moon are still fighting world war ii still fighting the last war and we're told several times by heinlein here through cargrave through cargraves that they're fighting that they're 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 of a different era they're in the era of nation states right and they the, our characters our heroes are in an era of a like of a, where there's more of a transnational consciousness or identity being being offered up now you know i i think I'm going to keep my eyes open for this, especially in the juveniles, because they're all written in this period of the Cold War. I want to see how they change over time, because um, militarism, militarism um, does play a role in these juvenile novels, the ones I've read, obviously culminating in Starship Troopers. Um, but, you know, is it a nationalist kind of thing or is it more of a global identity that he's offering up for these, this audience of young men? Right, who are, <coughs> excuse me, emerging in a world in which the United States is a global leader, but you also have the emergence of transnational institutions that are trying to create a more stable, balanced, peaceful world. 
Right, I think you're going to definitely get this in Space Cadet, which in many ways is a sequel to that, uh, what's that story? The one where you need like the, 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 essentially a global surveillance state to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. Um, Solution Unsatisfactory, is that the one? Um, Space Cadet kind of fits onto that. Um, of course, you have novels set on Mars or on other planets fully. But I do think there is an effort at kind of a global consciousness in these novels. So that's something I'm going to come back to when I when we read these other juveniles. That's something I'm going to be watching for. Because it is established here pretty clearly of, of a UN identity. It's maybe more blatant than, than it will come up later on. But that's a problem through this whole book, right? Everything is very much right in your face. But anyways, uh, I think this is the same chapter where the UN is, is declared as the where the moon is declared as a colony of the UN, that we get the working radio and they pick up a signal and the signal's coming from the moon. And then it's like, wow, who is this? And that's what we get. We get in the next chapter, um, the destruction of the Galileo. Yeah, it's in chapter 14. The Galileo is destroyed. Well, because once the Nazis realize that there are people on the moon, they send a bomber. Um, there's a different ships here. So there's the... There's a jeep, which is like the little shuttle, this, the shuttle for the moon that the Nazis used. And there's the Odin and the Thor and the Galileo. Those are the ships. So the Odin and the Thor are the ones going back and forth between the moon for the Nazis, supplying them and, 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 that, and that. So that's our, our way to get back to Earth after the Galileo is destroyed is using these Nazi ships, right? Either the Thor or the Odin. But they don't know that yet at the time. So when the Galileo is destroyed, Cargrades immediately thinks that this is the end of us, right? Maybe we can hold out for a couple weeks or a month. We got the, our doghouse. We got our fort built up. We have some supplies. Um, there is planning done, but there's there's not going to be enough time to get a mission from from Earth to, to save us. Plus, there's that antagonistic force that might have nefarious plans that they have to deal with, too. So that is basically where the rest of the novel goes. And I'm not going to go through it too much chapter by chapter, but um, essentially they uh, are forced to do any means necessary to try to stop the Nazis. So the chapter, I think it's chapter 16, is called like the, the secret behind the moon, which is really about the Nazis. So this, the backdrop of this is these Nazis had arrived three months earlier than the Galileo. So they hadn't been there for very long, but they kind of settled in the old moon men architecture to make it their base. So they're kind of hiding out underground. Um, now, apparently back on Earth, there is a remnant of the Nazi state that uh, wants to carry on the struggle, but knows they can't do that on Earth. So the plan is to then militarize the moon, shoot nuclear weapons from the moon to force the countries on Earth force the UN ultimately, although I don't think they have much consciousness. They, they're still seeing the world largely in terms of international conflict, not in terms of, of kind of a global government, the way our characters seem to be moving towards. But that's the plan, essentially. So Cargraves figures we have to do whatever is necessary, even if it means sacrificing ourselves to stop this. So um, eventually they, they the plan is to maybe bomb the Odin, which is the only other ship that can actually get back to Earth, if necessary, to stop the Nazis from getting resupplied. They learn later about the Thor as a second ship that's that's coming back and forth. Um, they eventually kill all the Nazis except one. 
uh, basically they bomb their buildings and they're they're spaced uh, while they're sleeping. So it's uh, some are shot earlier in the story, but one guy is uh, survives and his name is he's our he's our like Nazi point of view character, and his name is Von Hartwick, um, and he's uh, basically a uh, captured early in this part of the story uh, and is a prisoner of the Galileo's crew. And Cargrave used various threats to get him to go along with them. So he threatens to execute him a couple times, threatens to put him on trial, summarily execute him, whatever it takes. And eventually it works because eventually he says, okay, I'm a pilot. I can fly this ship. So he agrees to fly them back to, to Earth where he'll stand trial. Now, the interesting thing about the trial thing is how Cargraves uses the language of the UN to basically give himself the authority, the sovereignty to to uh, to, to be a judge, right? Uh, now, I don't know enough about law to know if this is possible. If, if you are in a situation like you're you don't have access to normal courts, right? Can you kind of do a kangaroo court um to enforce U.S. law in a in a place where the U.S. has jurisdiction, but there's no access to other courts, right? If you like capture a murderer and there's no way to get him to a judge or police, are you allowed to kind of create a kangaroo court? Uh, I don't know. I suspect there's something like that in common law. But that's essentially what Cargraves does. He says, well, since we can't get to a normal U.N. court, and you're going to be charged by the U.N. for eventually, I think it's murder because he murders, he shoots one of his comrades. So you're going to be charged for um, for murder, and the penalty will be death. But ultimately, he says, "Well, if you fly us back, we'll let you appeal it uh, back on back on Earth." So he says, "Okay, I'll help you for that." And that's that's how they get back to Earth ultimately. And they re-christian the ship, uh, the city of Detroit, and and return to Earth. So that's how the novel ends. But I do think the legal aspects of it, and the way Cargraves uses the law and uses the UN um, and the tension between this kind of more global law-based order versus the war-based nationalistic order of the of the Nazis on the moon. It's kind of interesting. It's just not really well developed here, um, but it's it's not really the point of the novel. It's just you could tell so it's something Heinlein is thinking about in the context of this post-war period when I think there was some hopes of maybe a different future from for the world than what we would get, which is the Cold War and the conflicts over decolonization, violent decolonization. That maybe there could have been a more peaceful decolonization process. Maybe there could have been a, a, a global alliance between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, I think on some level, the tower, some timeline, that could have happened. Um, I think it's one of those hinge points in history. So I guess that's it for now. I think things are going to get more interesting with... Uh, with the next one, which is Space Cadet. Um, we'll do that in probably a few weeks. I got a handful of stories to, to go through. Now, I will say these are shorter than the Astounding Stories. They were published in places like the Saturday Evening Post. Um, there was a couple pulp publications, but they all tended to be fairly short. Um, so there'll be kind of some quick episodes. Maybe we'll even combine a couple because they are some of them are rather short. Um, but I think we're going to start with Space Jockey. Um, hopefully I won't confuse that in my head with Space Cadet. Space Jockey, which is a really, really short story. 
Um, it was published later on in the Green Hills of Earth, I think. Um, but it's a, it's a small stack of stories I'll, I'll get through, but there's, there's probably like a half a dozen of them um, that he published the same year as Rocket Ship Galileo. Then we'll go jump to 48 with uh, Space Cadet. So um, should be fun uh, going forward um, as we get to focus more on the novels. So anyways, this one, you know, it, it's popular. A lot of people know it. A lot of people have read it. It's, um, it's not one of my favorite, though. But I, I still think there's a few interesting things to say about it. Um, and one thing I'm really going to pay attention to and focus on is his, his kind of geopolitical vision. Um, because he is such an American writer. I, I wonder if there's a an argument to be made that he's, at least in this period of history, really kind of optimistic about the potential of, of, of a UN order. Um, I think we see that in Space Cadet. I think we see it here. I think we see it in, in a couple other juveniles that I've read, all the way up through Starship Troopers, actually, which also posits a, a world government of sorts. So anyways, um, I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening.